Kairos, an online podcast for and by people of color. We're Kat and Sarah, and thanks for tuning in this week. We're lucky enough to speak with Dr. Allison Hobbs, an associate professor of African and African American Studies at Stanford University. Her book, Chosen Exile, was published by the Harvard University Press and takes a closer look at the phenomenon of racial passing starting from the late 18th century to the present day. From her personal connection to passing, Dr. Hobbs provides deeper insight into questions about the status of racial identity and colorism. All right, um, so our first question um, was about the concept of passing. So for anyone who might not be familiar with the concept of passing, would you mind giving a brief explanation and some background about the phenomenon? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So basically, passing is a phenomenon where light-skinned African-Americans pass as white. So in other words, they present themselves as white people. um, And often this leads them to have to separate from their families, um, to have to move away from the area where they've grown up, to have to move away from people who know them, people who know their families, people who know their friends, um, and sort of start a new life. And many people did this because it was a way of um, getting ahead. It was a way of being able to live in a better neighborhood or get a better job, particularly during the Jim Crow era where um, where there was you know, so much racial segregation. It was really the only way that people could gain access to neighborhoods or jobs um, or just a better life, just being treated with more kind of respect and dignity. Um, so that's a lot of the reason why people passed as as white. Um, some people saw it as just kind of a survival strategy. And some people did it just from nine to five. They did it just to get a good job. And then, you know, they would sort of leave their job at the end of the day and return to their black neighborhood and live their life as a black person and other people moved away entirely from their families and really never looked back, you know, just kind of started a new life as a white person disconnected from their families and from their friends, um, and, and passed permanently. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you've spoken about the fluidity of identity as demonstrated by the ability to pass. So with increasing globalization and the emergence of more interracial families, what does this mean in terms of the complexity of identity formation? That's a great question. That's a great question. So I think we're going to see passing kind of taking on new forms. So, you know, people often ask, do people still pass? And I think they think about passing often as black people passing as white, which is one of the most common ways that it's manifested, but certainly that's just one way, you know, that there's, there's a whole, that that's just one subset of a much larger phenomenon that, you know, women have passed as men, men have passed as women, um, white people have passed as black people, um, people have passed religion in terms of religion. So, particularly during the Holocaust, many Jewish people passed as Christian, you know, I mean, so, so passing has happened in many, many ways historically. Um, people of lower socioeconomic backgrounds have passed as 
people of higher socioeconomic backgrounds. So really, whenever there's been a, a way for people to um, to kind of improve their conditions, they've 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 passed. And now, I think what you're pointing out, which is so important, is that. As we're moving into a more global society, as we're moving into a more multiracial society, um, there, there will be new issues. There will be new sort of hierarchies that will lead people to make different kinds of decisions about passing. So I could imagine certainly people who are undocumented will probably try to pass as citizens. Um, you know, we could certainly imagine people who are um transgender passing in in a number of, of ways or people who identify whose who sexual orientation might be on any at, at any point of a spectrum might pass in particular ways if that might you know be beneficial for them in particular circumstances um, so I think that what is likely to happen is, that, that racial passing will continue because our societies are so um, deeply organized based on race. But I think that we're also seeing that, you know, gender fluidity is, is another area where identity is, is very much... Um, uh, multiple and you know where we see how identity can be very multiple and so so I think that we can see the ways that people would pass in terms of their their gender identity or in terms of their citizenship um, in, ter in terms of their nationality um, and then also still in terms of class I mean I think class passing will will continue you know i mean as it's as it's happened you know historically but i think that that we're still in a moment where um there are definitely privileges to be had by passing as being you know of a different socioeconomic class than than what you may be yeah definitely and um, you've also mentioned that for a while, historians regarded racial passing as a subset of history that was nearly impossible to research, since most who extracted themselves from their past to live entirely new lives didn't reconnect with their families after. So in describing your research, you say that writing a history of passing was also writing a history of loss. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, part of the reason why I say that writing a history of passing is writing a history of loss is because a lot of people assume that people who passed only gained, that they gained a better socioeconomic status, they gained access to better employment opportunities, um, they gained, you know, they, they, they were able to be treated um, with, with much more humanity. Um, but I think that we don't often look at what it meant in terms of of what they lost. So leaving their families behind, having to sever those kinds of relationships, in some cases, never being able to return to their families or having to pass, you know, if they did stay in the same town as their family, you know, having to like walk by a family member without acknowledging them, not being able to go to family events, not being able to 
be with a family member who was dying, you know, not, not being able to kind of have those deep connections that really like make us who we are. Um, I think were you know, that, that, that was a, a tremendous loss for, um, for, for many people who decided to pass. Um, and I think that, that passing is hard to research in a sense because most of the people who passed did not want to leave any record or any evidence that they passed. But the thing that I found in doing research was that there was still so much evidence of it because even if the person who was passing didn't leave a record, their family members talked about it. Their friends talked about it. Um, people wrote novels about it. You know, there were films about passing. So, and many of those films and novels were based on either the actual life experiences of the writers, or they were based on, you know, people that the writers knew or, or, um, conversations that they had with other people. So, you know, I think that, that, that passing is a, is a subject where literature and film, um, become really helpful sources because often literature and film really reflects the moment and sort of the, the issues of the time and the things that people are thinking about and talking about. And that was certainly the case with passing that many of the people who wrote novels about passing either passed themselves at some point or um, knew people who passed and were, were kind of uh, preoccupied with the topic were were interested in the topic and, and, and kind of fascinated by the topic. Yeah, definitely. And, um, Elsie Roxborough, who was a woman who decided to leave behind her heritage to become Mona Manet, was later found dead as her white as a white woman, and her sister later severed ties with her father. Um, and I was wondering about this idea of loss that you mentioned earlier, um, and wondering about like what could have been. What are your thoughts on the fragmentation of families within this period due to passing? Yeah, that's another really great question. Um, so I think that Elsie Roxborough's story is sort of one of the most tragic because she ends up committing suicide, you know, just as you, as you recounted, her sister never talks to her father again, the family kind of falls apart. Um, and it, it's, it, it, it really gets at the, the loss. It gets at, um, the, the, and, and, and of course, like we never know, what else was going on in that family? You know, we don't know what her sister's relationship was like with her father and, you know, what other, what other conflicts could have been happening. But one thing that was very interesting when I read the papers about Elsie Roxborough was that many people wrote her sister after Elsie's death and they all felt like, they had failed Elsie or, you know, at this point, Mona, um, because, and, and interestingly, the famous, um, playwright, Arthur Miller was a friend of Elsie Roxborough's Mona Menes. And he wrote a letter to her sister saying, you know, what a tragedy this was that she had committed suicide. He didn't know that she was passing. I don't think, I, I'm not sure, but I don't think that he knew that. Um, 
And so he said, you know, we've all failed her because she's committed suicide. And so I, I think that, that passing it, it sort of leaves us with all these questions about, well, well, how might, in some ways it sort of shows how our country fails people too, by not giving them the, or, or not, not opening up the opportunities for their success and for their, uh, for their ability to, to be treated with respect and, and dignity to feel that then they have to pass. So I think that there's some, some kind of interesting parallels between this sense that like when someone commits suicide, then the family and the friends feel like, oh, we failed this person because they committed suicide. But then it also seems like the way that people talk about passing, in some ways, they talk about passing like a form of death, like they've, that, that their black identity almost has to die, in a sense, in order for them to pass. And it's that death that has to happen that, that also leads to a huge loss because that's what separates them from their families. And in many ways, the families also describe it as a death because it's almost like their family member or their, you know, their son or their daughter who's decided to pass, it's almost like that person has died in order for this white person to, you know, emerge. So. I think it really speaks to the profound sense of loss that families and friends feel. And I think it also speaks to just the, the, the real pain of, of discrimination and of um, limited opportunities for African-Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned in your TED Talk that you began to sort of reconnect with your personal ties um, to passing during your time in graduate school when you live in Chicago's South Side. Could you describe the story that your aunt told that sort of sparked an interest in your family's connection to passing? Sure, sure. So my aunt was an incredible storyteller, and um, she told me a story about a family member of ours who had grown up on the South Side of Chicago in the 1930s and 40s, and um, she was very light-skinned. She looked white. Um, as did her brother. So, so she was one of, I think, four or five children. She had all brothers. And everyone looked very, everyone looked white. She looked the most white, though. And so after she graduated from high school, her mother told her that she wanted her to pass as white. She wanted her to leave the south side of Chicago and move to Los Angeles and live the rest of her life as a white woman. And so... This family member did not want to do this. She was very much ensconced in the life, her life on the south side of Chicago. She went to a predominantly black high school. She participated in all of the events and all of the community life on the south side of Chicago. Um, and she absolutely did not want to want to leave that community. 
Her mother, though, was insistent. Her mother really felt that this was the best thing that she could do for her daughter. She felt that passing as white would open up new opportunities for her. She would be able to live a better life. So she she really felt like she was doing the best thing that she could for her for her daughter. So um, she moves to Los Angeles and then few years later, she marries a white man. He knows nothing about her past. Um, we can only really imagine what stories she told him. You know, I mean, she probably would have had to tell him that her parents had died or, or you know, she would have had to sort of make up some kind of story so that he wasn't wondering like, well, why don't we ever visit your parents or why don't your parents ever visit us or, you know, he would have had questions, I'm sure, about her family. And uh, so 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 she had to make up something so that so that he would, you know, understand her background without her revealing what what you know, without her revealing her race. So then a few years after after this, she gets this really inconvenient telephone call and it's her mother and her mother is calling to tell her that. She has to come home immediately because her father is dying. And the woman says, I can't come back. And, you know, she says, I'm, I'm, I'm a white woman now. I have a husband, I have children, you know, I, I just can't go back. And, you know, we can only imagine what a wrenching telephone call that must have been for, for her to know, you know, she's not, she's not going to see her father again. Her father's dying. She's not going to be there for him. She's not going to see her mother again. She's not going to be with her brothers. You know, I mean, I, I think kind of the reality of what it meant to pass was really clear in that moment. And most likely her mother felt like, well, you know, yeah, you're passing, but like you can still come home for your father's funeral. Her mother probably hadn't, when, when her mother was so enthusiastic about her passing as white, she probably hadn't completely thought through what it would actually mean. You know, that, that, that kind of disruption, that kind of severing of those ties. And, and in fact, that kind of death, you know, that idea that well, like, in a way, this her daughter was had had kind of died in a sense already, you know, because it was like their relationship was over. Um, and so I I think that 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 story really helps to show how much people did lose and how personal those sacrifices were, and how sometimes kind of unwitting those circumstances had to be. Right, yeah, and we also wanted to discuss the idea of black identity in the context of Rachel Dolezal's racial, racial de- designation. Sorry, um, You wrote that we understand race as sort of a social construct which is rooted in cultural experiences, not strictly biology. Um, so I kind of wanted to know like, how we even begin to delineate what each person is. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So I, I, I have a kind of different view about Rachel Dolezal than many other people, a lot of people felt that she was, you know, that it was 
entirely inappropriate for her to claim a black identity and that she was clearly white and she has white parents and, you know, she grew up as a white girl and so therefore she's white. And I certainly understand that. I understand that that's the way our society kind of thinks. That's the way our society has encouraged us to think. But I also feel that if we are going to make an argument that race is a social construction, and if we as scholars know that race is not based in biology, then we, we, we kind of have to then at least be open-minded to someone who claims to be of a different race than what our society would identify them as. So, and, and I understand all of the, the, the kind of, um, issues around that, you know, I understand that people say, well, it's not really, um, it, it, it doesn't really make sense because, you know, a black person, someone who looks black can't claim to be white and then all of a sudden get white privilege, you know, or, you know, somebody who said that, 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 that another issue with Rachel Dolezal was that people said, oh, but, you know, at any time she could say, hey, I'm white and she could go back to being white, almost like she was wearing some sort of like cloak or like a disguise in a sense. And then when she got tired of it, you know, she could just take it off and be done with being black. Whereas people who are actually black don't have that as an option. Um, so I understand that it's very complicated and I understand that there's, that there are, there are a lot of differences around the way people experience their identities, but I still feel that it's, important to recognize that if we believe that race race is a social construction we know it's not based in science it's not based in biology then we have to be open to the idea that it is based on experiences it is based on um relationships it's it's a social category not a biological category and so I think that because of that as uncomfortable as we may feel about saying well Rachel Dolezal has the right to identify the way she chooses to identify as uncomfortable as we might feel about that it seems like from an academic standpoint that's really the that's 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 something that we have to just accept. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, I know we talked about it a lot at Stanford too, but um, along a different line sort of, we wanted to talk about um, racial violence and things like rampant police brutality. Is it possible that much of the general population has already become sort of desensitized to media coverage of these incidents and what steps we should be taking to ensure that these events are addressed and don't become obscured by this like desensitized um, attitude people have towards like massive violence and things like that. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think it's really dangerous um, how desensitized our country has become to police brutality, to police violence, to, to, to the killing of, of unarmed 
people of color. Um, I think we have also become desensitized to mass shootings, you know? Um, um, I mean, it, it almost seems like now, you know, um, we're, we're just, we've just accepted that mass shootings are a part of our culture in a sense. And I think that's very dangerous. And I, I, I really give a lot of credit to the Parkland students and to, you know, all of the student activists who have really stood up and said like, no, that's unacceptable. We are not going to just say it's okay. Or, or it's, you know, throw our hands up. Well, this is just a part of our culture, you know? So I, I think that, that that's really what it takes. It really takes a group of inspiring and inspired activists who will continuously raise the issue and keep our attention on the issue. Because I think particularly in our society now, there's so many things that are happening and partially, you know, because of social media we're so much more aware of so much that is happening, but the danger is that our, our attention span is so much shorter because we're constantly being barraged by new issues and, you know, new problems. And, and, um, and so I think it's critical that we have activists, um, and I think I think they should be of all ages. I mean, I think, you know, I think I think it's incredibly inspiring and amazing when when students speak out. Um, but I don't feel like it should be the responsibility of one group. Like, I don't I feel like that's a huge um, that's a huge burden in a sense for high school students to have to do all of the work of organizing and, you know, making sure that these issues stay in the, you know, stay as part of the conversation. At the same time, I think that students are really the most effective, you know, um, because of their passion, um, but but I just I just feel like it's something that we need to have more kind of unity and more of a of a movement. I think students should be the leaders of the movement, but I think that you know people of all ages and you know we are all affected by mass violence. So and and by mass shooting. So it, it's it's something that like we should all be behind and and we should all be lending support to student leaders yeah definitely that was really well worded um we also wanted to talk a little bit about um creating sort of an intersectional framework for sexual assault or other violent crimes specifically in the context of recognizing that experiences with rape or assault are profoundly different for people of color and different sexual orientations could you talk a little bit about that That's, yeah, and that's so interesting now, especially, like, what's happening with, like, Brett Kavanaugh's hearings. Um, I think that's so important. I think that it's, I I think that that part of what we're seeing even right now is that we still, 
societally, we still don't really understand the way that different identities shape different experiences. So, so each person, each victim of trauma has a history and has an identity and has a set of experiences that are connected to their own position, their own social location. And in order for us to really understand trauma and in order for us to really understand the effects of sexual violence, we have to look at those different ways that that our society affects what it means to be a man or a woman or what it means to be transgender or what it means. I mean, we really have to dive into that in a much more complex way than we have. I think we've, we've had a, a, a problem and I think there's really been a problem in the feminist movement as just as one example, which I think people are really trying to address now of assuming that like all women are white you know, and all women are middle class. And we know that's not true. So in order for the feminist movement to really be powerful, and in order for it really to be, um, to really affect change, then there has to be an an understanding and and a reckoning with the idea that like, feminism, or, or gender equality encompasses an enormous group of people with many differences. And if we try to flatten out those differences, we're really not going to get anywhere because then people are going to feel alienated. And then it's going to feel as though, you know, a movement is really only about securing rights for a very small group of a very small section of that larger group. And so that's where I think like the Parkland students, you know, are great models because they really said, okay, mass violence affects everybody. Mass shootings affect everybody. So let's not just say, okay, we're fighting for like our school and the students in our school, which actually would have been okay for them to do, you know, but, but they had the vision and they had the, you know, they had the, um, the kind of, far-sightedness to say like and the in, and the inclusive in the, the inclusive thinking to say no actually like we want to reach out to 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 students in Chicago and we want to reach out to people in 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 urban areas and you know in different parts of the country and make this a mass movement because it's it's with diversity and it's with you know people of different experiences and of different social locations that this movement can really gain more traction. So I think that really should be the goal of like the women's march, feminist movements, you know, um, people who are, who are fighting against um, sexual assault and sexual violence to, to, to really take into account, to really try to learn and understand the ways that, um, that, that, different individual experiences affect the way that a person experiences trauma and the way that a person experiences sexual violence and, and, and the way that, that that experience then affects them, you know, 
for the rest of their lives, like in the way that that experience affects their relationships with other people that like, we can't just assume that there's sort of one experience of sexual violence and you know, that doesn't even make sense, but I think that has been the problem. And that was certainly the problem with the Anita Hill case that people thought like there's one experience of sexual violence or sexual harassment. And that experience really is when a white woman is the victim or the survivor and then they kind of tried to take that mold and put it around Anita Hill and it just didn't fit. And then it didn't, it didn't, it didn't end up being successful. Right. Yeah. And I think sort of tying back to our discussion about the intersectionality and the complexity of identity, I almost wonder if like talking about each individual incident in the context of a more complex individual identity almost creates the possibility of conversations evolving into like, I guess, the oppression Olympics, where it becomes, like, a question of, oh, who's more oppressed? And I was wondering, like, what your thoughts on, like, trying to bridge that gap? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that is a real danger. I think that definitely is a danger, because I don't think we get anywhere with that either. But I think that if we, if we try to learn and just under, like, broaden our understanding and learn, like, okay, you know, every, every experience with trauma has a history. And the more that we understand, the more, the more, the, the larger framework for, that we have for understanding sexual violence, the better we are at both fighting it and helping the people who have survived it and helping the people who have survived it in ways that are much more, um, fitting for their particular experience. And so I, so I actually think what could really happen is like that, that by, by trying to understand the larger framework of oppression, it can lead to a movement, you know, instead of leading to like an oppression Olympics it can actually lead to like, okay, well, you know, we're, we're just, we're, we're, what, what we're trying to do is understand how different people are affected and then see those, see where the commonalities are because there are a lot of commonalities. And I think, I think one thing about like the, the oppression Olympics is that there's almost an incentive to not look for commonalities. It's almost like, let's let's avoid trying to find any commonalities because if we find a commonality then like i can't win the oppression olympics you know but i think if we try to find those commonalities then that also leads to a stronger movement mm-hmm. right and i and i sort of feel like even with like Brett Kavanaugh like i feel like watching Christine Blasey Ford's um testimony i think that that Personally, my, my feeling about it is that I think that there are many people who thought like, oh, she will be treated a lot differently because she's a white woman. Mm-hmm. And then we actually ended up seeing, in fact, no. I mean, she, 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 yes, there are ways that she was treated differently. There are ways that the fact that we're 
in the Me Too moment, the fact that we're 30 years after Anita Hill, you know, it's it's not the same. She's not going to have the same experience as Anita Hill. But still, there are there are ways that we're seeing how she's treated, how she's being treated as a survivor of sexual assault that where she has some things in common with the way other women and other survivors of sexual assault are treated as well. And so I think there's a possibility to sort of come together and to say, this is a huge issue. The only way we're going to really challenge the patriarchy is if we work together and to recognize that like these differences are the things that are being used against us to blunt our movement. You know, it works in the favor of white men for women, white women and women of color to like not work together because then that only, you know, solidifies the power of white men. Right. Actually, this is sort of a topic that just came to mind. Um, in, the re- in terms of representation in, for example, like educational programs um, that picture things like sexual assault, I know my school does a, like a screening of The Hunting Ground, the documentary about sexual assault on college campuses. Um, I actually never realized before, but I recently read that the film itself only represents um, a black man raping a white woman, but there's no other like representation of other types of assault I was wondering like if that's even an accurate representation or if it should be filmed or it should be like previewed other schools that that that's interesting so so in the hunting ground all of the women it's it's the stories are all of women who have been assaulted by black men oh I think it was just one particular instance but in the other interviews the women don't talk about the race of the perpetrator Oh yeah, that's another problem. I mean that, and that's that's such a long-standing like historical problem of, you know, making it seem as though like white whiteness is like a default or it's like a a neutral identity rather than it's a racial identity too. I mean, you know, with Brett Kavanaugh, it's it's really important. Like he is a white man who is and and much of what he's talking about and much of what he's arguing about has to do with his identity and his sense of privilege and entitlement as a white man and so to not talk about race with Brett Kavanaugh would be a real I mean that that would be a real mistake because it's not like he is raceless you know, and and when we do that, when we separate, when we do that because we think of, of, of whiteness as being neutral or as being, you know, um, um, the, 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 the norm, in a sense, I mean, one, that makes it seem as though anything that's not white is in some way, like, different or or but different in a bad way you know like like it's like abnormal or um uh problematic in some way 
Um, but also it separates it, 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 it's, it's really important to, to, to keep in mind, like the, the dynamics that, you know, this, this was, uh, this is a white middle-class or upper middle-class woman who is accusing a white upper middle-class man of sexual assault with Anita Hill. It's really important to keep in mind that she's a black middle or upper class middle woman, uh, an upper uh, a middle or upper middle class black woman who's accusing a middle or upper middle class black man of assault. Now they both came from much, you know, more modest backgrounds, but, but it's, 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 it's so important to keep at the center of the conversation. The fact that, Anita Hill was sexually harassed by a black man. That's different than if she had been sexually harassed by a white man. Just like same thing with Christine Blasey Ford. I mean, like, it's important to sort of keep raising the points about race and class, you know, because because they're they're intimately entangled in in race. You know, we can't sort of separate out. I mean, this is what we've been, what we talked about around intersectionality. You can't sort of separate out the identities of class or gender from race. And often when we talk about white men, we do that. We act like white men are just like, they're just like the norm. They're just like people and everyone else has all these identities, but that's totally not true. White, white men have a, a, a racial and a gender and a class identity, you know, just as everyone else does. Right. And this is a little bit unrelated, but I was really interested in hearing about your thoughts on the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration of people of color. And in terms of like reforms that are possible within the judicial system, as well as like, I guess, um, like reforms in terms of like schooling and education for, for incarcerated people. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I I feel that that is such a, a critical issue, and I mean, I wish I was like more of an expert on that issue than than what I am. But I mean, I definitely think there need to be widespread reforms. I definitely think that you know, people who have served their time should absolutely be able to vote. You know, um, when they when they are on parole or when they're out of prison. Um, I think that we need to really change the system instead of being such a punitive system. It's got to be a much more rehabilitative system than, than, than what it is. Um, I think we're, I think it's, it's just uh, tragic and devastating to think about the amount of like human, um, uh, uh, like, I, I, I don't want to say human capital. I mean, I guess that is the right term, but, but I guess what, I, what I'm, what I'm, what I'm thinking about is when, when we think about how much money is used to keep people in jail and how that money could be used to educate for education, for job, um, uh, training. I mean, for for just so many other things, that that's that's a real um, tragedy. And 
you know, I also think it's it's a real embarrassment as a country that we incarcerate more people than any other, you know, any other like, um, uh, I, you know, I, I'm trying to think what's the right word to use because I, I don't want to say like, like, you know, first world country, but like any other like modern industrialized country. You know, I mean, I think that 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 we are literally we incarcerate more people. We're in a category when it comes to incarceration with countries that we would not want to be in the same category with for anything else, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think we really have to think about that as a country and what that means. And, and, you know, that, that, I mean, that's, that's just not, that's just awful. Um, and so, so I, I think that we really need to, think about how we can change the system most, you know, most immediately from being a, a punitive system that people never get out of, you know, and that has such high, um, um, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the word, um, of when you end up going back, recidivism, <laughs> like such high recidivism rates, you know, to a, to a system where people are rehabilitated and then become productive members of society. Mm -hmm. And I think that has to do with sentencing. You know, I think we need to change the sentencing, sentencing, sentencing guidelines. I think we need to completely rethink drug laws, especially now that marijuana is going to be legal, you know, um, and is legal in a number of states and, at the same time, you have people serving life sentences because of marijuana. I mean, and some people are becoming billionaires because of marijuana. I mean, that doesn't make sense, you know. So, um, so yeah, that's a very complicated issue. But I definitely think that that's one of the one of the most important issues of our time. I actually, that's pretty much the end of the questions I prepared. Do you have any last thoughts or questions or anything of that sort? You know, I'd love to hear more about the like the, what you're what you're doing, like about this project and mm -hmm. and like how you came up with the idea and who else you've interviewed and sort of yeah your your thoughts about the project. Actually, while I was at Stanford, I had my first interview with Amanda Nguyen, the uh, okay. Nobel Prize Peace nominee. She like passed legislation for sexual assault and rape for rape kids. What? Yeah, so um, I started actually during Stanford, but the person I'm working with uh, went to Kenyan Young Writers, and she's also really interested in, like, politics and activism. So we kind of just got together and, like, created this. I, it was really organic, I think, actually, the process of creating this from the, from the bottom up. So it was really nice. Um, we've released currently two, podca uh, two podcast episodes, but we're looking to release one every two weeks. That's fantastic. Congratulations, Kat. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. That's so great. Well, it's a real honor to be asked to be part of this. Thank you so much. No, it was such an honor to interview you. I think I've always wanted to talk to you more about the stuff we discussed at Stanford, but I know that we didn't have that much time, so I'm glad that we reconnected after the program ended. <laughs> me too. Me too. And let's definitely just plan to stay in touch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for letting me interview you. It was really a, it was really a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. My, it, was, it was entirely my pleasure, so thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, have a great rest of your afternoon, and I look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>
Okay, definitely. We'll be sure to stay in touch. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. In two weeks, we'll be talking with Jennifer Ling Datchuk, an Asian-American artist whose works include Dark and Lovely and Girl You Can, and the founder of the Porcelain Power Factory, where each sale of a functional ceramic cup designed to empower women contributes $25 to Planned Parenthood. See you then!